The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I thank you that you are at work around the globe calling in all kinds of people. In every tongue and tribe and land, Lord, you are calling people to yourself and making a great kingdom, a vast army, a massive family of worshipers. We bless you for doing that and we bless you for making us a little part of it here. Us personally and then us here in this place gathered together. You have made us a piece of your global work. We give you thanks for that. You're the one doing it. It is your global work. You have made us a part of it. That's about you. And this text this morning is about you and your role, which is dominant. And leaves us simply saying, thank you. And I pray, Spirit, that you would work here this morning to, in fact, draw out from us that thank you that is due to the Father through the Son for His initiative and for His work of including us in His kingdom and His family. Calling us into fellowship with His Son. It is kindness and grace. Thank you. Cause thankfulness to rise up in us this morning, Spirit of God, I ask you. Would you give us eyes to see the text and understand it? Would you give us eyes to see God in it, behind it, and over it? And I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray that you would use this word of yours to change us individually and to change our church corporately. That we would become a people who honor you and, and conduct life with one another and with others that we run into out there. To conduct life in a way that honors you, lifts you up, not ourselves. Would you work change like that from passages like this? And this morning I pray, use this one in particular. Give me clarity and expression. Give us ears to hear, I pray. For the glory of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, I ask you to do this, God, and for the good of your people here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This morning we finished chapter 1 of the book of 1 Corinthians, and as we've been looking at this chapter over the last month, we've seen how Paul, under the inspiration of God, has laid out an issue for us. He's laid it out, which is part of what we've learned, but we've also learned how he's set it up. He's laid out for us in verse 10 and following the main issue that the church in Corinth faces, an issue of division, both division within the church of groups against groups, and in some ways a division of the whole body itself separated off from Paul and from God. He's laid that out for us. But that's not actually the main issue. The main issue we see in how he set that up before 
and then where he's gone to after introducing the, the division. He sets us up, the first nine verses, by mentioning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember that ten times in the first ten verses? And he has sung to us in those verses, this is what God the Father has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has called you to Him, poured out grace on you, is sustaining you all the way to the end and looks at you as guiltless in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me talk about divisions. And then, he immediately leaves the division and goes right to the cross. As we saw last week. Talking about and emphasizing the cross craziness to the world, but to those whom God calls the wisdom and power of God to save. Seemingly, he's dropped the division thing, but no, he hasn't. It's back there. It's always back there. Because that's not the main issue. The main issue that causes the division thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ and all God the Father has done for you in Him has been lost, marginalized, forgotten. Forgotten. The issue is not division. The issue is what causes division. And so Paul goes to that and says, we must lift back to the middle God in Christ saving you, the Gospel. Last week was the means, the, the cross, the means by which He calls His people. And this week we move to the calling specifically. And this gets personal. He talks about you, Christian. But, as always, it's really about God. It's about us, sort of, but it's about God. It's always the point. So let me sum up my main point this morning in this brief sentence and then we'll unpack it. God means for us to read these verses and consistently consider God's choosing of you. That's the point. Consistently consider God's choosing of you. I'm going to unpack that, but first let me read the passage. This is 1 Corinthians 1. Verses 26 to the end of the chapter. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. The Word of God. Here's my first observation from the passage. We are in Christ by the gracious choice of God alone. We are in Christ by the gracious choice of God alone. In Christ. We have life in Christ. Take that primarily from verse 30, though we've talked about it a couple times before. It's in verse 2 and in verse 4. Remember, I use this, this idea. You can use other ideas. But I use this idea of a balloon. 
called out from the world and placed inside a balloon in Christ. And in that balloon, there's a different atmosphere, a different air we breathe, a different life that's given there that's distinct from what's out there. To be in Christ is to have a whole different life. And we're going to talk more about that coming up. The main point here, really in the whole passage, but particularly my first observation, is that we are in Christ. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ in this atmosphere by the gracious choice of God alone. Alone. Nothing could be clearer here. Verse 27. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. Indeed, things that are not. God chose. God chose. God chose. That's pretty clear. But it keeps getting clearer. Verse 29. God chose so that no human being might boast in His presence. We have nothing to do with it. Nothing whatsoever to point at and boast in. Verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Or as the NIV translates it, it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Or the NAS, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So three different ways, three different translations in which English translators are attempting to, to grasp and, and express to us the complete one-sidedness of this sentence. It's all about God, not about us. It is all by God's doing, not ours. He's the source of it. It comes from Him. It's by His doing. He chose, He chose, He chose. God alone. Those words are remarkably repetitive and straightforward. But even more, those clear words are strongly reinforced by the logic of the whole argument. When verse 27 and 28 says that God chose what is foolish and weak and nothing, that's talking about us. That's people. He chose what is nothing. He chose people who had not figured it out. Who had not worked towards it or accomplished something to make themselves worthy. He chose people who were not competent and capable and achieving People bring nothing to the table. And God did it that way on purpose. Something we said last week too. If you weren't here last week, you might review that passage up above there. God's doing something on purpose up there. And He's doing it here again on purpose to shame the wise, He says. To shame the strong. To reduce to nothing people who think they are something. So that no human being would boast. We bring nothing to the table. We are in Christ by the gracious choice of God, period. Which is very important to have settled properly in our minds. And as I work through this, or rather... Let Paul work through this because I hope to say nothing that is not crystal clear from these verses. 
As we let Paul work through this, I imagine, I don't, I don't imagine, I know that for some of us this is difficult. It's unsettling. It's not familiar to you. It raises questions for you. Well, what about, what about, what about? So let me, let me talk with you for a second here. For your own good, I plead with you. Let yourself come to the Bible and form your theology from it. We all have a theology. Everybody, every single person on the planet has theology. Ways you think things work. And I'm just pleading with you. Most of the time what we do is we develop a theology that's based on what we find reasonable with a couple of Bible verses sprinkled in it and then come and read passages like this in light of that. I'm pleading with you, take a text and go the other way with it. Take a text and form your theology from it. I know that sounds obvious to us who are Christians here. I have to say, I have conversations like this constantly where I'll walk through something that seems to have a lot of repetition and a lot of clarity to it, and, and I have a conversation with a Christian, and what comes back at me is, well, what about my cousin so-and-so? Revealing my cousin's situation is how I'm reading this. I want to ask you, please, read your cousin's situation through this. Not the other way around. There is something here for you that God means to be for your good. For your good. Blessing to you. And we'll come to that. You're calling your salvation is by the sovereign choice of God. Period. And just to clarify something, this text, along with lots of others, eliminates the notion that God chose us after He looked ahead and saw that we would first choose Him. That's very common today. Have you heard that? That we, we see in the Bible something about God choosing and, and we think... It's commonly today thought that, yes, okay, God chose, but because God knows everything, God looked ahead in time and saw that I would choose Him, and seeing that I would choose Him, then He chose me. You heard that before. Do you see how this text eliminates that idea? The whole point of this is that everything is due to Him. So all praise is due to Him and nothing whatsoever is due to us. None of us can boast in anything. If God looked ahead and discovered that I in myself, before He acted, which is critical, looked ahead and discovered that I in myself already had something in me that would look at the cross and see it as the wisdom and the power of God and choose it in and of myself, not only would that render verses 18 and 21 and 23 and 24 false, those are verses that we covered last week, in which God says that never happens, 
That before God acts, every single one of us regards the cross as folly and craziness. Irrelevant at best. But if you looked ahead and saw in me something first that would choose all by myself and then responded to that, if that was in me, that would not only render those verses false, but there would be something significant in me of which I could boast in comparison to the next guy who didn't have it and didn't choose and therefore wasn't chosen by God. If that was in me, there would be something in me, the decisive element in me, I would be the source of it. My wisdom, perhaps, or my insight, or maybe my humility, or maybe my awareness of my need, or my willingness to trust, or my simplicity, my something that God saw and then responded to. That is not the case. We are dead in sin with minds blinded so that we cannot see the light. We are foolish, weak, nothings. In fact, the text indicates that even compared to the rest of the world, we are foolish, weak, nothings. God seems to work that way deliberately so as to highlight this issue. It is explicitly not that God chose me because I first chose Him. Explicitly not that. I choose Him because He first chose me. We love because He first loved us. God takes the message of the cross spoken from human mouths in time and space here as we speak it with our mouths to ourselves, to other people. He takes that message and by His Spirit uses it to open eyes. To open eyes so that we then see that is glorious, awesome, beautiful wisdom and power and then choose it. God acts first. And when He acts, He opens and we then respond. Surely. That's how He makes foolish people like us wise. We are in Christ by the gracious choice of God alone. God has done it. It is marvelous in our eyes. Really? Is it marvelous in your eyes? It should be because it is. Marvelous. When you consider who we were, who we are in and of ourselves, if God did not graciously reach out and choose, but first waited for us to make the first step, it would never come and we would perish. It is marvelous that He has done this. He has rescued us from destruction and delivered us to, by His choice, wonderful things. That's the second point. So here's the second point. This gracious choice of God is an incalculable blessing to us. 
The gracious choice of God is gracious. It is grace. It is undeserved, unearned blessing. It is grace to us. A blessing that brings degrees of blessing that are incalculable. You'll never be able to measure them all up, total them all up, identify them, enumerate them. can't ever calculate all of the blessing that God has poured and will pour on you. I take this primarily from verse 30. By His own initiative, God has chosen the places in Christ where, as verse 4 said, we, in Christ we are recipients of His grace. He pours it out on us. He's the source of it. But then, 30 continues on to flesh that out a little bit. He's the source of our life in Christ, whom God made our wisdom. And right at this point, if you have the NAS or the NID in front of you, you have a little bit of an advantage here in understanding the relationship of these four words, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And incidentally, this is a, this is a little tip, a, a point about Bible study. You don't need to know Greek and Hebrew. You need to have two different English translations. And you can read through them and compare them and figure stuff out as you watch the grammar and what they do, each of them in comparison to each other. And if you were looking at the ESV like I have and the NAS or the NIV, you'd notice there are words stuck in between wisdom and righteousness, sanctification, redemption, which separates them. Putting an emphasis on wisdom. He has made Christ our wisdom. Pause there for a second. That's a huge issue in all these chapters. Wisdom and folly, back and forth. Wisdom and folly. Because Corinthians, people, Americans, are constantly looking for wisdom. Wisdom as defined in this sense. A cleverness or an aptitude or an ability or a, a brightness or a sharpness that helps us to make life work, to acquire, to advance to build, to grow, so that we then make a status and a standing for ourselves. We are always looking for an edge, a way to get ahead. And I don't mean that illegally. I just mean we're looking to advance. How do you do that? We go to seminars about it. We read books about it. We, we, we take advice over coffee about it. Wisdom. People are looking for that, always have been. People come to church looking for that. Sit in the pew looking for it, thinking maybe Christ is that. Maybe Christ is the one that can help me kind of figure out life and make it work and, and become accomplished. And God has chosen to place you in Christ, who is your wisdom, but not quite like that. A little bit different. Better than just making my life work here. Christ, who is your wisdom, that is... Your righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Christ crucified is the wisdom and power of God not to make your life work out. He is the wisdom and power of God for you, for your righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Those are words that roll off a Christian's tongue pretty easily. What do they mean? Be helpful to. Pause there. Work on these. 
these three terms, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, are not completely independent from each other. They're kind of different views or different angles of the same central thing. God's work to save us in Christ. So there are different ways of looking at the at that issue. God's work to save us. Christ, our righteousness. Term borrowed from the court, the courtroom of that day. Put simply, every one of us stands before God, our judge, with a problem. We are sinners. We are guilty of breaking God's law and offending His holy nature. Condemned, then. That's one of the possible verdicts in in a a legal system of that day. We we in our legal system have guilty, not guilty. Well, condemned was, was one of their possible verdicts. And the other one would be justified, which is related to righteousness. We're talking about legal verdicts here. And we stand in and of ourselves... Condemned. We stand before a God who is holy. We stand as lawbreakers before Him. What we need is a different legal standing. Is there a way to not be condemned? But to instead be justified, declared not guilty. Righteous in the eyes of the judge. We need to be found that, but we are sinners through and through. Christ is made our righteousness. Mm. Christ is made our right standing. Bless God. Christ is made that. God looks at Him when He looks at us. He's looking for you, but you're hidden under the robe of Christ. So He looks right at you, but sees His righteous Son on you. And He sees your sin taken off of yourself, placed onto Him, crucified. Folly, crazy insanity to the world, but the power of God, the wisdom of God to render you righteous. Not that you didn't sin. Not that you shaped up and mended your ways. Not that we did a decent job, the best we could do, and then He makes up the rest. It is transferred onto Him, the whole account. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and took our penalty on Himself. Died on the cross to remove condemnation, to leave in its place righteousness before the judge. In the wisdom of God, Christ crucified makes you right in His eyes. Even while you sit here a sinner. Do you sit here right now intimately in touch with your sin? Because it's still there. Take a second and get in touch with it. Something trivial, snapping at your kids in the car on the way here this morning. 
or your spouse before you left. Or last night, what you're watching on TV or on the Internet. Or, or last week at work. Something, or maybe some pattern of something. Do you see your sin? What happens in your thought and in your words and your deeds that either breaks God's law by acting or breaks God's law by not acting? Do you see your sin? And aware of that, there are two groups here. Prayerfully, all of us are aware of our sin. And there are then two groups those who are in Christ and those who are not. There are some of you here this morning who aren't Christians. I don't know who that is. Some of you know you're not Christians. You're just here looking into this. Great. Thanks for coming. That's good. I'm glad you're here. Some of you though, think you are Christians and aren't. But you stand, you sit, guilty before Him, without Christ as your righteousness, therefore having none in and of yourself. And my prayer is that right now even, God the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes and causing you to see that as a tremendous problem and to see Christ crucified as your only hope, but a really, 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 really good hope. Righteousness can be yours. Do you see that? If you don't, it will pass on by you. But if you do... My prayer is that He opens your eyes and that you see it. And you reach out and say, God, help! Grab it! And He will write on your account, righteous. Be awesome. Do you see your sin? And do you see Christ crucified as the wisdom and power of God to change your forever and bring you to this good God? Trust Him. And there's the other group of us here who already have, and you sit there, and by the grace of God, you right now sit there keenly aware of your sin. Are you aware? Do you see it? Is it palpable? If you are in Christ, He has forgiven you. You are righteous. Aware of your sin. Are you equally aware Christ is your righteousness? Not because you yourself are righteous. Not because you merited it or cleaned up your act. He is your righteousness even in your sin. You're a Christian. Oh, bless God for that. It should give you a release and a delight in Him. You are not righteous because you cleaned up your act. And you won't be more righteous when you finally get that sin under control. 
You won't stand before Him more loved when you shape up. Christ is your righteousness. He looks at you and sees you and loves you standing in grace. He is your righteousness and He is your sanctification. Which means, in your mind, maybe hold yourself in that courtroom still too. You're in the courtroom and the judge just declared you righteous. The verdict. And in our legal system today, that's the end of the thing. Case dismissed. And you walk out. It's not like that. Sanctification means that when He declares us righteous, that's not the end of the matter, that's the beginning of an eternal matter. It starts something different and new. You were just declared righteous. And to sanctify is to set aside from, to bring out from something else, to bring out from and to. And very often it's used in association with the idea of holiness. The words are related. To set aside from, to pull out from sin and put into holiness. Sometimes it can be a one-time deal, but most commonly we're talking about a work of progressing growth. A verdict and a change process. He sets you into the change process. So to say that He is your sanctification is to say He is your change In Jesus, He is at work in you to change you and grow you in holiness. He forgives you of your sin, but does not leave you in it. We can't choose one or the other. We get both, which is a good thing. He doesn't leave us in the sin. He forgives it and then pulls us into this place of change and growth. Sanctification. He works by His Spirit in you to change you and make you different. He actually has power. Talked about this last week. He actually has power in the cross to change you. That long besetting sin, He can free you from that. You've always been this way, but you need not always be this way. He roots things out. He works and cuts off edges. He is changing you. There is great hope in Christ your sanctification. And your redemption too. A word borrowed from the slave market. A slave would be redeemed at a price. Bought. Somebody owns the slave. Somebody else pays a price to that owner and redeems him or her. Brings him out. 
But think that through. Now who owns them? The one who paid the price. Now, redemption implies something good, freed from an oppressive sort of enslavement to a better type of enslavement or ownership, but it does not imply I'm set scot-free with nobody in charge. Who paid the price? That person now owns you. Freedom from destructive bondage into liberated service is what has happened to us, just like Israel redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Not set scot-free, brought into the kingship of Yahweh. And then he says, and here's what life is to be like as he issues to them his law. That's the redemption that we have in Christ. An ownership that has made us nobodies into somethings in this world. Slaves to Christ. Set apart. Sanctified to Him. He has a standard that He's going to pull us towards. He's the ruler. It's His standard. We are owned by Him. And He moves us to Him by His means of what? Law and punishment or promise and grace? By His means of promise and grace, He moves us towards His goals because He owns us. He is a good Master. Showing us His goodness. Calling us to follow Him. You follow people that you think are good. He has begun a work to show you, I am good, follow me. We've been blessed with a tremendous, gracious gift. Christ as our wisdom, that is, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption, far better than just helping you work your life out. It has changed you and changed your forever. All by the gracious choice of God. You wouldn't have any of that if He did not first choose to give it to you. Bless His name for it. He is working in you, Christian. He is working in you to make you the image bearer that He always intended you to be. Which is going to change you and make you different now. And will forever bring you into relationship with Him. And you're going to spend forever praising the glory of His grace. What He's given to you. That's what grace is. What He's given to you. Not what was earned or deserved or merited. The wisdom and power of God for us in Christ crucified. All by the sovereign initiative of God so that no one may boast which is the final point. Here's the last point. Regularly consider this calling to destroy sinful boasting and grow Godward boasting. Regularly consider this. 
so as to destroy sinful boasting and grow Godward boasting. Something's supposed to happen as we reflect on this truth. That becomes apparent when we look at verse 26 and see the word consider. Grammatically, what Paul is commanding there is not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing, persistent thinking about something. This is not intended to be some idle point that he's like trying to score in a theological debate of some sort. We, we very often, we, we so often miss something critical because we talk about these issues only in conflict, sparring with one another. I think this means this. I think this means this. I, well, I see here and blah, 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 blah. And we never stop and say, why? Why is this here? He has put it here to accomplish something in us, and we see that He intends that because He tells us, think about this all the time. Consider this. There's something here for you, Christian, that will affect you, and if you don't consider it, you're going to miss it. What is it? What are we supposed to consider? What we've just been talking about. The Gospel. Consider your calling. And here's the calling. Here's who you were. God chose you, put you in Christ, your righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Consider all that. The Gospel. You know, another phrase we could use right there, phrase I use a lot, I stole from somebody else, though it's not original with me. It's another phrase we could put in there. Instead of consider your calling, we could say preach the Gospel to yourself. Constantly. That's what Paul's saying here. Consider your calling. Not many of us were wise or powerful or of high birth. doesn't say none, just that not many. Christianity's not anti any particular class. It's saying that God seems to work, seems to emphasize people who have nothing to boast in so as to underline the nothing to boast in part. Habitually choosing the foolish and the weak and the nobodies because He is trying to destroy sinful boasting. Verse 27, He chose to shame the wise. Later, to shame the strong. To bring to nothing things that are, in the world's eyes at least. And again, the same grammar points being made here. This is not that He shamed them once. It's an ongoing shaming. God's agenda in the world today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that is to shame that which the world thinks is awesome and is inclined to trust in and reach out and trying to become nothing, he says. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So that no one will ever be able to stand before God and say, look at me, look at how wise I am, look what I figured out and look what I did. Never. In His sovereign, free choice, God has assured that any and every ground for human boasting is cut off at the knees so that we don't have a leg to stand on. 
and are left with only one object of adoration. Him Himself. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. A quotation from Jeremiah 9. Which is a very similar passage to this one. God has always been about this. Old Testament and New Testament. I am against humans boasting in themselves. I am for humans boasting in me. How egocentrical of him. For our good. For our good. There's only one genuine heart-sustaining reality in all of the universe. God Himself. And He does good to us by lifting that up and tearing down all competitors. So as to hold this one up in front of us and draw our hearts to that one and refuse our tendencies to draw after all kinds of us. That is His goodness to us. He has always been about that. And it is supremely seen in the Gospel. Consider this calling of yours, brothers. Consider it. Here's how this may work. I saw an article in the paper last Sunday, perhaps you saw it too, about a basketball player for the Utah Jazz, Darren Williams. This is not a story about Darren Williams, although he's going to be in it a lot because it is a story about Darren Williams. But there's another point, which you'll see. And in the article... There was a story recounted about Darren's playing days in college at the University of Illinois, a fine institution. Uh, I'm an alum. One of the years that he was there, and the years that he was there, they had good teams. I'm not sure which year this was that the story's about, but they, there are other guys that he played with who were in the NBA and have played pro ball, different venues. So there were some good players there when Williams was there, but... One of those years, the story went, the coach wanted to teach him a lesson about something or another. And uh, to accomplish this, he started making Williams play with the scrubs. Williams obviously was a scholarship player, a starter, and the coach was making him play with the scrubs, the, the guys who were the second and third string, the walk-ons, the guys who didn't have scholarships. So they got the four starters and the second string point guard and Williams and all the scrubs. And Williams at first did not like that. But funny thing happened. Williams and the scrubs started to win. Regularly. The story says. And he started to get into that. He started to kind of like that and started to joke along with the coach. And, and it says that he joked and said, hey, coach, go get the bus driver. Put him on my team. <laughs> to embellish a little bit. As, as if he wants to say... You four guys, you are star athletes, highly recruited, scholarship players, probably have futures in this game. I'm going to get the bus driver. He's going to play center. Hey, you're the trainer. Put down the water bottle and come over here. You're going to be the off guard. And the media guy and his girlfriend are going to play forwards. I'm going to play the point. We're going to crush you. And then they did. And they did again. And again. Must have been shaming and humiliating for the four starters who can't beat the bus driver and the trainer and the media guy and his girlfriend, Darren Williams. Again and again, they pull it off. And I imagine that 
at least a couple of you right now are starting to daydream a little bit, thinking, man, Williams is awesome. Right. Exactly. Williams is awesome. And the bus driver would be a fool to start walking around campus. Yep, took down the varsity again today. You're the bus driver. Right? Wouldn't he be a fool to say that? The whole point is that it's all about Darren Williams. Darren Williams plus anybody wins. And it's highlighted by the fact that you, bus driver, are a nobody. That's why you're on the team. That you aren't anybody. Because the point is to highlight the talent. The star. Which is exactly what God has done in choosing you, Christian. A nobody who brings nothing to the table. And the only reason you're at the table is because you have nothing. How foolish it would be to walk around the church or town, chest stuck out, look at me, I'm a Christian. Though I had nothing to do with it whatsoever. How foolish and wicked. It's stealing glory from the one who is the star. Who did it all. And it's setting you up above the other ones who are just exactly like you. With nothing themselves either. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Preach this gospel of God's sovereign grace to yourself regularly so as to chop off human pride at the knees. Just like that. (laughs) I couldn't have planned that if I tried. (laughs) Let me give an example of how, how this might... Look in our church. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use as an example. I'm gonna use the very thing being taught here, this very doctrine, because I know that some of you here are delighted with me right now, because you already 110% agreed with this and are thankful that somebody finally set up in the pulpit. And some others of you are quite unsettled because you already didn't believe this and are very frustrated that somebody set up in the pulpit. So right there we have the making of two camps in the church, don't we? Not quite Cephas and Apollos and Paul, but pretty close. We have the makings of division in the church right here. So, what do we do with this? I'm not going to try to talk through both sides of this. I'm just going to approach it from one perspective, my own. And so you'll have to translate it if you're in the other camp. But I've taught this this morning. Tried to be fair. Tried to be kind. 
tried to stick very closely to the passage, pointed out the words and what they mean there, tried to show the implications of it. And let's suppose that this Wednesday afternoon, Sally Sue tells me that she overheard Billy Bob in the hallway complaining about me, complaining about this sermon. The pastor always twists the text and always pokes at his favorite doctrines and skips all the other good places that are, that are contrary to what he's saying. He's biased about that. and I don't know how much longer I can take this. Sally Sue reports that to me. What goes like this in me at that moment? Something not good. Actually, it doesn't have me. I don't sin. But <laughs> what, what would happen in you? What would happen in you at that moment if you heard somebody talking about this person does this and they're, and they're so biased and they, they deliberately twist things and I'm so frustrated with them. They're unfair. What, what happens in you when somebody, in your estimation, slights you or insults you and you think they're wrong and behaving wrongly in their wrongness? I try to imagine what would happen in someone. Obviously, it happens in me too. That thing rises up in me, and I get a little angry, and I get a little defensive, and I start to think about things that I probably shouldn't talk about. Part of me would really like to have a conversation with Billy Bob. I probably should. He, him and Sally Sue both need some talking to. <laughs> They show up in a lot of bad situations. But I I want to have a conversation with him, which is a little less like a dialogue and a little more like a monologue. But if I believe what I'm preaching this morning, by the grace of God, something else comes into my mind and fills my mind and gains dominion over that. What is it? There could be any number of things, but think about some of the things from this morning that if I consider them, and if by the grace of God I preach them to myself, what will come in and what will happen? Well, it could be some things like, Steve... You are no different than he is. His response, it's your response right now. You're no different than he is is from birth. You're just as proud. You're just as arrogant. And if you happen to be at some point a little different than he is right now, a little more advanced, suppose you do understand this and he doesn't at this point right now. Where did that come from, Steve? Given to you by the grace of God. Any natural ability that you have, where did that come from? Given to you by the grace of God. Any spiritual ability that you have, where did that come from? Given to you by the grace of God. What did you bring to this, Steve? I love how Charlie prayed this morning. Nothing but the sin. 
But Christ, who is my righteousness, has forgiven this. Bless God, because this attitude right now in my mind is enough to send me to hell. My righteous Savior, I am saved. And He's working this out of me as He is in relationship with me, my sanctification and redemption. And you know what? That's what matters most of all. Not my reputation, my standing with God and my eternity. And that is secured, unthreatened by Billy Bob. Rest in this security, Steve. And you know what else? He's at the exact same place as I am. A sinner saved by sovereign grace, deeply beloved by my Father and His both. So not only would it be folly for me to boast about my superior understanding of this doctrine or this text over and against you, it would be evil because I attack the one who is dearly loved of the Lord for whom Christ died. Those might be some things that would come to my mind as I consider my calling and how I am nothing and everything that I am is by the grace of God and all that I have from God is the most significant, most important stuff anyway. Kept in heaven for me who believes by the grace of God. You have nothing to boast in, Steve. You didn't bring anything to the table. You are a bus driver. Maybe that would come into my mind on Wednesday afternoon and I would consider that and my response towards Him and towards that would change and I would love Him. Now, I may still have to confront that, but I would confront it from love. Less monologue and more dialogue. We all are just bus drivers. Don't boast in yourself or in your camp looking down on others. Humbly boast only in the Lord. Consistently consider what He has done for you. So take a moment right now. We're going to move to communion. We're going to take a moment right now to pray. If you need to confess sin, if if you need to think about a boasting, competitive attitude that you've had, confess it right now. Deal with God for a few moments, and then I'll draw us back together, and we'll move towards communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.